Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, Heart of Healthcare listeners. I'm your host, Hallie Tecco, and today we are going to be talking about food as medicine. Many people believe America's health problem started as a food problem. Today, more than one in 10 Americans do not have reliable access to nutritious food. More than 100 million people in the U.S. suffer from diet-related diseases. Studies have shown that good nutrition can promote positive health outcomes and medically prescribed diets have proven to work in reducing common conditions like hypertension and diabetes. Yet food as medicine programs have struggled to scale, and often it's easier for doctors to prescribe medication than it is to prescribe food. So can technology help? Today's guest, Fiji Simo, took the helm of Instacart in 2021. After recognizing Instacart's role as a staple in millions of households and at the intersection of food and health, she helped launch Instacart Health, focused on nutrition security, making healthy choices easier, and scaling food as medicine programs to help people live healthier lives. Fiji, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Heli. I think a lot of people see grocery delivery as a luxury. Can you tell us how grocery technology and delivery can actually promote nutrition security and health equity? Absolutely. And I think that's really at the heart of what we're trying to enable with Instacart, where we're trying to make the service as accessible and as affordable uh, for all Americans. And right now, we reach 95% of the U.S. with fresh food in under, delivered in under two hours. And so in terms of you know, de- providing access to that uh, nutritious food, we've already really covered all of the U.S., including 93% of food deserts. And so we, we really obsess over having the service as accessible as possible. In terms of affordability, that's kind of the next step. And we have put in place a lot of different ways uh, for people to be able to afford grocery delivery. A good example of that is that we were a pioneer in bringing uh, the SNAP program online, the food assistance program in the U.S., and that has resulted in millions of people being able to uh, purchase their groceries online using SNAP benefits. And that's really important because, you know, when you look at these lower-income communities, very often they're trying to pack two jobs in one day, they don't have access to a car, and so the idea of being able to skip the trip to the grocery store and getting groceries delivered is incredibly important and almost even more of a value add uh, for these populations and for the you know higher income populations that we 
typically associate grocery delivery with. And so this is just one example of, of what, we're make, what we're doing to make the service more affordable. But going forward, we think that it will require even more actors uh, coming to the table, like payers, like providers, to also be part of the solution of, of making our grocery delivery more accessible. So for listeners who aren't familiar with SNAP, it is the largest federal nutrition assistance program for low-income individuals in the U.S., something that's top of mind right now for a lot of folks is that there's an upcoming expiration of emergency SNAP funds. Can you tell us about what's happening? Yeah, absolutely. So on March 1st, 32 states are ending some of what's called the emergency funding for SNAP. And so that means that for SNAP recipients, their budget for grocery is going to be reduced by about $95 a month. And so as a result of that, food banks are anticipating a big rise in volume in March from families needing uh, more assistance as a result of these changes. And that's made even harder by the fact that food banks are already struggling with rising food prices and therefore uh, the, the ability for food banks to acquire food and stock up their shelves uh, in, a, in a manageable cost. And so as part of that, we are launching a, um, a program called Community Cards, which we did during the holidays, but we're expanding now uh, because of what's happening with SNAP benefits, where any person that comes to Instacart can contribute uh, specific food items to a network of food banks uh, from Feeding America. And the food banks are uh, determining a set of items that they most need to stock up on their shelves. And uh, any individuals visiting Instacart can just pick the items that, that they want to donate among that list. And our uh, shop personal shoppers go and deliver these items to food banks directly. Another thing that we're doing as part of this uh, very big change is that we are expanding our discounted Instacart Plus membership for people on SNAP benefits. And uh, this is something that, uh, you know, allows you to get free delivery on your orders. And we are allowing SNAP beneficiaries to purchase this membership for 50% off for the next year compared to other, other users. So what you guys are have implemented is is a sliding scale offering. So for those of us who can't afford to pay the $9.99 a month for a membership or $9.99 a year for a membership, we can. And then those who that would be too much have a lower price. Yeah, like for for regular uh, you know people, it's it's um, ninety nine dollar a month, uh, ninety nine dollar a year. Sorry, and then for for SNAP beneficiaries, we're making it uh, five dollar a month, four ninety nine a month for the for the next twelve months. So to your point, this is uh, this is really a sliding scale. I I love the way you framed it because. Uh, a good example of that is, you know, if we launched recently the ability for people who really value convenience over price to pay an extra $2 for a faster delivery. Meanwhile, if you value price over convenience, we actually credit you back $2 if you um, if you are okay with receiving a delivery the next day or during a you know three-hour uh, slot. And so that allows us to really serve all of the U.S., which is interesting because if you look at you know the demographics of Instacart three years ago, it was primarily for affluent audiences. And now if you look at our demographics, 
demographics right now, it actually mirrors uh, the split of U.S. population pretty closely. And that's a result of all of the programs we've put in place to make the service more affordable. So tell us about launching Instacart Health. And you guys collaborated with the White House on the conference and have been, you know, leading the way in terms of accepting EBT and SNAP. Tell us, Instacart Health, I mean, you're building a healthcare company now. (laughs) <laughs> I, I think we see ourselves much more as a, as a technology partner to the healthcare industry. But fundamentally, you know, when I joined Instacart, it was so obvious to me that we are at the, at the heart of the relationship that people have with food and, you know, food is medicine. So fundamentally, we're at the heart of the relationships that people have with their health. And I really believe that health starts in the kitchen. And so uh, the launch of Instacart Health in September was actually something that I felt very strongly about even before taking taking the job. And so it's been really interesting to see just in the last six months, the traction that we've had with payers, providers, employers, nonprofits, really wanting to leverage Instacart to scale all of their food as medicine programs. Because food as medicine has been, you know, something that's been talked about since the 60s. At this point, there are very few people arguing that health starts with, you know, a healthy diet. But when you look at what the healthcare industry has been able to do to actually embrace preventative care and really scale these programs, it's been, you know, really disappointing, to be honest. And a big part of it is because, you know, if they wanted to scale these programs, they would have had to partner with a lot of retailers because, you know, people want the dignity of choice. And so that's very hard to scale for a, you know, given hospital system or even a given payer. Uh, We provide that. We have already, you know, uh, um, on our platform, we already have a thousand plus retail banners. We deliver from 80,000 stores. So we already come Mm. to these payers and providers with this amazing infrastructure uh, that really allows them to scale these programs uh, without having to do it in a really subscale way. Like, you know, we've seen some providers sending one-off produce boxes to patients. And, you know, that's that's great as, as a first uh, step, but that's not the kind of thing that's going to provide a long-term sustainable change in behavior and is going to scale to, you know, many millions of patients. So uh, what we provide is a really scaled solution for uh, both payers and providers to do so. So I had Michael Moss, author of Salt, Sugar, Fat, and Hooked on the podcast, and he was an investigative journalist who talked about how big food companies have literally got us hooked on junk food and how this has disproportionately impacted low-income individuals. How can you or how can technology help people make better food choices? Yeah, so that's really interesting, actually, because we did a study uh, with No Kid Hungry, which showed that on average, online shoppers spend more than $5 more on fruits and vegetables compared to in-store shoppers without even increasing their total grocery bill. And by the way, that also applies to people who are on SNAP benefits. So even lower, like that, that holds true even for lower income populations. And when I started digging into why on earth would that be the case, a lot of times it comes down to the fact that people can better manage their budget online. And so they know that they're not going to exceed a particular weekly budget that they have for grocery. And they are able, as 
as a result to fit in fruits and vegetables as part of that diet and maybe take out a couple of other things that were less healthy. And uh, and so that's that's been really enlightening to see that uh, by just, you know, giving this simple tool of budget management, you can actually end up with, with better uh, health choices. We also are investing a lot in inspiration and education. So, for example, uh, we have made a lot of partnerships with publishers, like a good example is Hearst, to bring health-focused uh, recipes on the platform that you can then purchase the ingredients, uh, the ingredients to make the recipe in just one tap on Instacart. So that has also been, uh, you know, really helpful. We have created a product called Shop cards where health experts and influencers can create these curated cards um, you know if, imagine you know low sodium lifestyle or you know what to eat uh, if you have diabetes where you can literally purchase again in in one tap and then we have also added health labels so like you know gluten-free dairy free across yeah. half a million items in our catalog so that people can sift through products more easily to find what they need. And our core principle across all of that is that we don't want to be in the business of telling people what to eat. That's something fundamentally personal. And we don't think that telling people this is good and this is bad really, uh, really helps. But we think that we can inspire them and nudge them towards, yes. uh, you know, healthier outcomes, especially if we bring, you know, experts and influencers that they trust on the platform and, and inspire them to make these choices. Yes, I love that. And the recipe section, which is very prominent in the app is almost reminds me of Pinterest. You know, you see these really beautiful food photos. Some of them are videos and you can kind of get inspired for what to eat. Are you guys making it a priority that you're showcasing healthier recipes in that recipe section? Yes, we are. Yeah. We are definitely prioritizing that. We're also prioritizing pop-up, uh, uh, pop-ups on our homepage. So these are basically uh, mini stores that are curated, and um, a lot of them have a health bent. So think like you know your vegan favorites or low sodium lifestyle again. So that's a way for us to expose people to items that they may not have thought about. They may not, uh, you know, they, they may not be part of their usual diet, but help them change their diet in a really easy way. Yeah, I love that. So you were born from a family of, correct me if I'm wrong, three generations of fishermen <laughs> in yep. France. Yeah. Tell us about this amazing journey from a fishing village to Silicon Valley. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, I was the first one in my family to even graduate from high school. So not wow. totally destined to end <laughs> up here, but clearly I had food, you know, in my DNA uh, from the get-go. And, um, and you know, it's been interesting being in a family of fishermen because I find that the people who uh, feed the world take so much pride in their work. And uh, it's such an ancestral and meaningful uh, job. And so what 
when I when it was time for me to kind of decide whether I was going to take the Instacart CEO job, I kind of uh, was able to find a lot of parallels between the grocery industry and even, you know, gross, uh, grocery partners, many of whom uh, are family businesses and my own upbringing of, you know, finding so much pride in, you know, feeding the local community. So that, that's been amazing. And then, you know, on the journey, I was always fascinated by technology, having been exposed to none of it growing up <laughs> and uh, and also fascinated by the U.S., um, mostly because I was watching way too much American TV. <laughs> what shows? What shows were you watching? Well, you know, I always joke that I, I picked California because I watched the OC quite a lot. Mm. And mm-hmm. um, and my, in my first like flight to California, friends to California, I literally had the soundtrack of the OC, like, you know, California, here we come. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you can, you can do more cliche than, than that. Yeah. But, you know, my American dream uh, became true. And so, um, I, um, yeah, I've been... Uh, I've been on this journey of uh, really trying to figure out how technology can impact people's life, but in a really pragmatic way. I, I always uh, say that I'm a pragmatic technologist because I've seen, you know, even in the fishing industry, how technology can have like very concrete, practical applications. And so I love technology, but the thing I love the most is like, how can it be applied to solve real important human and societal problems. And, you know, I think nutrition is definitely one of them. Yeah, absolutely. And and how old were you when you came to California? And what was kind of your first foray into technology? Yeah, I think it was 2008. Eight and and I was I was uh, I did an, an internship at eBay in France and then begged them to uh, <laughs> you know hired me in California uh, and so that was kind of my first uh, my first technology experience and again you know it was. It was not technology for the sake of it. eBay was really about like connecting people around commerce and technology making that possible. Uh, and so that was, you know, fascinating, a fascinating experience. And then a couple of years later, I uh, moved to Facebook and I spent 10 years there, uh, really also focused on this idea of connecting people. We'll be right back after the break. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence.
you know, I ask this question to a lot of my healthcare guests, um, which is that, you know, we all face naysayers in healthcare. There's a lot of negativity, a lot of folks who don't believe that things are going to change. I like to consider myself an optimist and you really have to be an optimist to be a founder. Can you tell me about some of the biggest roadblocks that you faced in your work with Instacart Health? Yes. I mean, I think, you know, the biggest thing is that people fundamentally can see sometimes how the landscape can completely change. They're, they're very focused on the boundaries they've been trained to have. And, uh, you know, nutrition is a good example. Like there are so many healthcare, uh, you know, organizations that really don't consider that part of their scope. They don't consider that, uh, they don't consider food to be part of healthcare. And that's a real challenge because, you know, I think a big part of the problems that we face in the US is that healthcare has really become sick care and, and not treating people to stay healthy, but really only treating them when they're sick. And so a lot of what we've had to do is actually educate the, about the fact that things can change, in fact, and that if you take a broader view, uh, there's actually a real business case for uh, for nutrition. You know, there's a study that came out recently that shows that if all payers were uh, reimbursing the cost of uh, healthy food for all diet-related conditions, they would save $185 billion in healthcare costs over 10 years. That's a massive number. And so, you know, when you take a step back and you think about this industry and the incentives that drive it, I think people don't always realize that it is not just, uh, like what we're talking about here, is not just doing these things because they are the right thing to do. It's also because there's a massive, you know, business benefit that I wish more healthcare mm -hmm. leaders were seeing. But to your point on optimism, in the last, I would say, few months, very much catalyzed by the White House conference, I have seen a change. I have seen a lot of uh, healthcare leaders actually embrace some of these ideas and realize that change is possible. And we're seeing it in particular in the Medicare and Medicaid space, which has to be innovative, obviously, uh, given their setup and ha they have to think about preventative care. And so we're, we're starting to see a shift in that direction. And my hope is that more healthcare organizations join in. Yeah. I mean, one of the issues is that the health plans if, if it takes 10 years to kind of see that ROI, someone else might be benefiting from it. So they're not going to make that investment. But when you look at Medicare, Medicaid, it, someone might be on, on that path for a lot longer so they could recoup the investment. How do you think we fix that? You're, you're absolutely right. And we hear that pushback so many times on, on oh. the fact that, you know, no no one wants to be the first mover just in case, <laughs> uh, so, you know, these people move. I think, you know, it is really about payers realizing that if they actually all move together in this direction at the same time, yeah. uh, it will it will actually result in massive business benefits for them. And I think, you know, they're starting to realize that. They're also starting to realize that 
employers are looking for these benefits. And, you know, obviously employers have a lot of sway with payers and more and more employers are thinking about, uh, you know, how to keep their workforce healthy, happy, well-fed and um, and demanding more, uh, more work in that direction, which I think is going to be a good pressure point for the ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so, because I, I, I agree that this is something where if we could get the health plans, the providers on board, then it makes, you know, the technology can fuel making this happen, but having those who are actually running the system buy in is, yeah. is critical. It is very clear that if someone is food insecure, feeding them is going to result in better health outcome. And honestly, no one is pushing back on that anymore. But mm. when you look at food as a way to help improve chronic conditions, whether it's diabetes, etc., there's, there's a general acknowledgement that, of course, it's going to have a positive impact, but there's not a lot of precision. Meaning, like, you know, if you go to a doctor right now and you have, you know, a particular health condition, the doctor is going to be able to prescribe a particular pill at a specific dosage at a you know specific time of day. We don't have that for food. We don't know if we should be giving you X amount of vegetables for that condition. How long is this benefit? Does this benefit need to be funded for to create real behavioral change over the long run? And all of these questions are still a little bit unanswered. And so we're seeing a lot of you know providers and payers embrace that and not wait for all of that data to come in and run a lot of pilots and tests, which is encouraging. But fundamentally, over the long run, we need to solve these questions and have real food formularies so that we know exactly what to fund at which moment in time to, to uh, best benefit our outcomes. Yeah. So I'm not sure if you've seen these photos of school lunches around the world, but I'm pretty sure the the lunches that I had in public school in Ohio looked different from what you were <laughs> having in in coastal France. What are your thoughts about how we feed our children and what we can do better? I mean, the thing that's really crazy to me is that childhood is such a critical moment, both for, you know, long-term health outcomes, but also long-term healthy behaviors. Like these are, this is a moment during which we're training children on healthy habits and how they're going to feed their families over the long run. And at Instacart, because we're so embedded with, you know, family life, we think about multi-generational health. And if you miss this moment of, you know, teaching kids about healthy food habits, uh, that's that's a pretty pivotal time that you've missed. And so obviously, you know, I'm, I'm even more biased coming from a from a French background where we were incredibly spoiled with, with good food uh, uh, growing up. But yeah, I do think that, you know, what we feed our, feed our, our children is critical and schools have a massive role to play there. And I mean, we've, we've seen the role that they have, especially with food insecure families in, you know, making sure that children are well fed and, you know, having healthy food as part of that is critical. And, and you know, this is not the only place where uh, this kind of uh, interesting situations happen. If you look at hospitals, like the food in hospitals also tends to be pretty terrible. Like, in fact, we when you look at the studies, like, it was 
staying at a hospital increases malnutrition rate. And that's pretty crazy when, you know, we obviously believe that food is medicine. Hospitals should be also the place where we teach you about how to eat healthier and how to have, you know, better yeah. food habits. And instead, we're making you even worse, uh, you know, in, in this setting. So I think there's a lot that can be done through schools, through hospitals to, uh, yeah. you know, use these moments to teach better habits. Yeah. I, um, as I said, I grew up in Ohio and in Cleveland, where we have the Cleveland Clinic, a world-class hospital, but it had a McDonald's in the lobby until pretty recently. They finally, I think, realized it was sending the wrong message. <laughs> but yeah, I think we need to have, have these conversations everywhere about how, um, how we're feeding our communities. Let's switch gears and talk about one of my favorite things, women's health. You on top of being CEO of Instacart, recently helped found and launch a women's health company. Can you tell us more about this? Absolutely. So about, you know, three years ago, I was diagnosed with uh, a neuroimmune condition, which is basically a condition at the intersection of the nervous system and the immune system. And I realized that the level of care for these conditions, which primarily impact women, was really terrible. And the scientific research around this condition was chronically underfunded. And so I found two amazing co-founders, Dr. Laura Pace and Dr. James Hemp, and we decided to create Metrodora, which is a large-scale medical and research center uh, based in Salt Lake City uh, dedicated to these conditions. And the real innovation there is that uh, we're really bridging clinical care and scientific research all in one building with clinicians across specialties uh, collaborating with researchers uh, and scientists on, you know, developing the path to cures while also providing patients with the absolute best level of care for these conditions. And as you know, many people know, when you have some of these conditions that affect multiple body systems, you're basically bouncing around usually from specialist to specialist, a neurologist, a GI doctor, a rheumatologist, no one knows what's going on with you. No one has the full picture. And so we really ask ourselves these questions of like, what would healthcare and scientific research look like if it was reinvented from the ground up for collaboration? And so the entire building itself, 60,000 square feet of state-of-the-art medical clinic, is entirely designed for collaboration between different specialties of medicine, between clinicians and researchers, and even collaboration with patients. And why Utah, not California? Well, we looked at many different places. And the thing that was interesting is that this is a destination medical clinic, think, you know, similar model as Mayo. And uh, we wanted people to be able to come in from, you know, all across the country. They stay with us from between one to three weeks. And so we wanted a very, very easy, you know, uh, easy to uh, city to get to. And Salt Lake is the second city in the U.S. that has like the most flights uh, flying in. Oh, wow. And so that was that was uh, yeah. a big reason. The second reason is that this is actually a big hub for biotech. And so, you know, we're literally down the road from recursion and, and other leading biotech companies. Uh, and so that has also been, you know, very helpful as we build not just a medical center, but really an ecosystem uh, of biotech companies around it. Amazing. So what are some of the opportunities that you see for innovation in 
in healthcare, whether it's women's health, food as medicine, or another area that excites you. And by the way, before I answer your question, I just want to touch yeah. on one point that because you, okay. you called it women's health. And, you know, it's been really interesting because when we launched Metrodora, we actually decided to not call it women's health. And I'll tell you why. Like, even though, you know, 80% of our patients are going to be women, the reality is that there's still this belief that when you say something is women's health, people assume it's reproductive health. It's almost as if they assume women have only one organ, their uterus. <laughs> and it turns out, you know, women have a lot of different organs. And what we're doing is not reproductive health. It's it's really, you know, um, like health conditions that, that impact multiple body systems. But it's been so interesting to me to realize a bias that people have in really associating women's health with, with reproductive health, when in fact, there's such an untapped market and an untapped potential of really thinking about healthcare in a different way for women, because, you know, their immune system behaves differently. They mm. have like so many other differences than just their reproductive organs. So I just thought that, yeah. was, that was important. Yeah. It's funny, I just posted um, something on that topic about how we have to move beyond just thinking about women's health as our our body parts and more about unwinding the entire patriarchal system, healthcare system that has been built by and for men. And so actually a lot of it is more, a lot of the issues that we face are more challenges, systemic challenges that that have nothing to do with our reproductive systems, but the fact that test dummies look like men. And so they're, you know, they're the size of men. And so women are more likely to get injured in car, car accidents um, and whatnot. But I, I do agree with that. And I think why I'm drawn to use the, the word women's health for your company is because I love to see more spaces that are created by women for women yes. in a way that is not, what do I say? Like, shrink it and pink it. Like anytime we have um, something in this space, we want to make it for women. We just like, you know, make it smaller and and color it pink versus actually think through uh, the the entire experience, the whole body experience that a woman has. Yeah, I, I so agree. And in fact, you know, it goes back to the last question you were asking me on like, what do I see as a big, big opportunities? In my mind, if you look at scientific research, we've kind of reached a diminishing returns, I would say, with the way we're doing it by focusing on each of these organs, you know, like it's scientific research on the heart, scientific research on the brain. Uh, I think the next stage of scientific research and discovery is going to be really at the intersection of the nervous system and the immune system, the nervous system and the GI tracts, the nervous system and the endocrine system. And a lot of scientific research right now is not done this way. And I actually think that a lot of the conditions that primarily impact women, autoimmune conditions, neuroimmune conditions, are really these conditions that are about the interactions between all of these body systems that we do not understand. And so I, I think that by focusing on that, even, even though right now these are uh, women, uh, the conditions that primarily impact women, we're actually going to be making scientific discoveries that impact men as well, because there's very limited understanding of the, of the interaction between all of these systems. Yeah. How are you educating yourself and getting up to speed on medicine, given your background is in technology, but now you've launched a company in the, the medical clinic and research facility. 
what are you doing to kind of get up to speed and get your, you know, your MD in this? <laughs> well, I'm far from an MD, but uh, I'm incredibly curious. And, mm. and, you know, on top of that, when you have one of these conditions yourself and, you know, these conditions have a hereditary component. So I really want to avoid, uh, you know, my daughter getting one of them. Yeah. Like it yeah. creates even more motivation to, uh, to learn. And so when I got started on, uh, you know, building Metrodora, uh, I actually enlisted the help of uh, Stanford students uh, and I took classes during my weekends in biology and biotech. And let me tell you, like, you do not want me, you know, treating patients or or designing drugs quite yet. (laughs) But but I learned enough. Soon though. (laughs) (laughs) I learned enough to be able to be helpful, you know, and, uh, and a big part of the role I've played is really connecting the the clinic and my co-founders with this incredible constellation of new technologies, uh, biotech technologies that take, you know, 17 years to make it into clinical practice, which is insane when there are so many advances right now that could be helping patients, but because as we know, healthcare is quite slow, uh, really don't make it to clinical practice uh, in in any amount of time that helps uh, helps patients. And that's fundamentally one of the things that we want to change. Yeah, absolutely. I always say we need we need more diverse perspectives in healthcare. And I think the systems thinking that you've learned in technology kind of brings a fresh perspective on solving age-old problems. Absolutely. And even if you look at our, our founding team, uh, one of my co-founders is a uh, MD PhD, the other co-founder is a top scientist PhD, and you know, I'm a technologist. And so even our founding team is actually a representation of our mission of breaking down the silos between clinical practice, scientific research, and technology. And if you break down all of these silos, and to your point, bring in a very different perspective of how to solve this problem, you get better results. And, you know, in technology, when we have a hard problem, what do we do? We just bring the best people from each of our teams across product, Mm -hmm. engineering, design around the table, and we start brainstorming. And, you know, very naively, when I got sick, I thought that that was what was going on in healthcare. I was like, hey, you know, to my, my doctor at the time, I was like, are you like, you know, brainstorming with scientists on this like hypothesis? And he was like, oh, no, we don't talk usually. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> you know, for, for me, it was like, oh, my God, like this is a problem that is so critical. It touches people's health and they're not applying the techniques that are pretty much, you know, proven for how to get the best ideas and how to to innovate. And so that, that's why we decided to build Metrodor in a very different yeah. way, like very anchored on collaboration. I love it. And hopefully more um, more folks can learn that lesson and we can be more collaborative. I think we just, we need more of that within healthcare. Our problems are too big to to solve them in a silo. Um, and we need, as, we need as much help as we can get. So Fiji, we so appreciate your time today and wish you all the best on both of your ventures. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. 
Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our host is Hallie Tecco. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.